Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased to welcome Daniel Pinchbeck to the podcast. Daniel is an American author of several books, including most recently, How Soon Is Now? From Personal Initiation to Global Transformation. He's also the founder of the web magazine Reality Sandwich and Evolver.net and founder of the Think Tank, the Centre for Planetary Culture, which produced the Regenerative Society Wiki. So thank you very much, Daniel, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Very much looking forward to talking to you about many things, in particular your last book, How Soon Is Now, The Handbook for Global Change. Many fascinating and provocative ideas uh, therein. A good place to start, though, would be maybe if we just talk a little bit about what you do, what your background is. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a writer of several books. My first book was uh, Breaking Open the Head. It came out in 2002. focus of that book was Psychedelic Shamanism. I visited tribal cultures in West Africa and the Amazon in Mexico, looking at the visionary experience produced by entheogenic plants. Uh, I also wrote about modern world's relationship to the visionary experience and modern chemicals and so on. I mean, that book was really chronicling kind of like a spiritual journey on my part, evolving my own understanding of the nature of reality, etc. And my second book was called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Uh, that book was focused on the prophecies of indigenous cultures around the world, like the Maya and the Hopi, correlating those with uh, other traditions, whether the, the Hindu tradition of the Yuga cycle or the Judeo-Christian archetype of the apocalypse. And as I finished that book, you know, I, I wanted to shift from the metaphysical to the practical. And I was always been kind of focused on what's happening ecologically for a very long time anyway. So um, I began to wonder what was going to be kind of like the ultimate meaning of this ecological crisis we're facing and also how we could have a systemic shift to a different way of being, different type of social organization, different kind of technical support systems that would allow us to flourish uh, as a community, a human community in the long term. So that's what led me to the last book, How Soon Is Now. Yes, yes. Before we go into uh, some of the, some of the, the, the ideas and, and the development of the book itself, what's on your mind? What kind of problems are, are keeping you up at night? What, what are the things that most concern you? Well, I mean, if I'm to be totally frank, I think that we're in very serious danger of kind of civilizational crash or of going extinct as a species. And I don't think this is far in the future. You know, that, that basically is, has been my hyper focus for a while. And I don't really, it's sort of hard for me to understand how people are focusing on anything else. But I think it's because they're just not fully informed or they're, you know, either fatalistic or, or deluded. I mean, even Donald Trump's science advisors just put out a paper predicting a seven degree Fahrenheit or four degree Celsius temperature rise by the year 2100. You know, even two or three degrees Celsius temperature warmer would be catastrophic beyond anything we can imagine. So, I mean, I could, you know, go into that and break it down in much more depth, but, you know, we're in this period where we've already kind of overshot planet's ecological limits, and we're still not using our collective creative capacity to address the disaster we're creating. Yes. Do you have an idea or a set of ideas about how we got here? How we got here? Sure. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, we only developed industrial technology over the last, you know, two, two and a half centuries. We didn't imagine that we could either 
evolve so rapidly or have such a significant impact on the planet's ecosystems as a whole. You know, we're, we're primates, we were tribal people, we developed larger civilizations. We're not, our brains are not primed to think about, you know, uh, you know comprehensive uh, systemic dismantling of the planet's ecosystem. And then the other thing is that, you know, we're still catching up and learning uh, how, I guess, how fragile the whole system is. You know, so for instance, it's only a few decades ago that we discovered these huge deposits of uh, frozen methane uh, under the Arctic and the Siberian peat bog, which are now thawing and beginning to release methane in significant quantities. You know, I don't think we could have, we could have imagined that we could have overfished the oceans to the point where there's like basically hardly any large fish left in the ocean, or that ocean acidification could proceed so quickly to the point where the oceans are now 30% more acidic than they were 40 years ago. So at the heart of what you're saying is this ecological crisis. And what is, in your view, the connection between ecological crisis and spiritual or personal uh, individual crises or uh, path? Yeah, I mean, well, that's a long and complicated discussion. I mean, um, my own, you know, kind of work on that is, is really explored in greatest depth in the second book I wrote, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, where I looked at a lot of different philosophical views, whether Heidegger, Nietzsche, or Rudolf Steiner. I mean, I looked at uh, occult philosophies ranging from Steiner's to, to Gurdjieff's to tantric philosophy to shamanism and so on, and, and also kind of correlating that with what we're discovering from quantum physics, which kind of tells us that consciousness is not an epiphenomenon of matter, but is actually the, the uh, fundamental aspect of the universe. It's, it's uh, the observing, participating consciousness that causes a wave to collapse into a particle. So in, in some way, we're intrinsically meshed into the fabric of the cosmos, our, our, our awareness, our intention, and so on. Yeah, so in that sense, perhaps human consciousness collectively, individually, we're, we're living in this time of uh, intensified possibility, intensified catastrophe. In a way, we've on some level constructed this situation to either bring about our own evolution or degradation or transcendence or transmutation or transformation. It's like a collective movie or, or, or song that humanity is creating together as much as we're all individually a part of it. Yes. I mean, were you, had you high expectations for 2012 that things were going to change in a substantial way? Uh, I didn't ever really see it that way. I felt that it's unfortunate because in a way my work got a little bit dismissed because I became associated with the 2012 idea. And I did call my book 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And I later made a documentary called 2012 Time for Change. But neither in the book or the documentary did I ever really insist that anything drastic or amazing or horrible was going to happen on 2012. I saw it more as an opportunity and invitation from the from the cosmos, in a sense, for humanity to you know kind of elevate itself to to a higher understanding. And um, you know, for me, it was more something that we could have used to engineer a shift. And in fact, I spent uh, some time trying to put together a major event for December twenty first, two thousand twelve, like a global focusing event on the internet, uh, you know, on the Mayan pyramids with a global meditation and so on, with this idea that maybe we could focus on that date to help people shift into a different understanding of their interconnectivity. But uh, it was quite interesting that, you know, that event, you know, didn't come together. A lot of efforts didn't seem to work very well. And, and yeah, so, you know, I, I still believe that we are in this prophetic unfolding. Uh, a number of indigenous elders and teachers who I've spoken to over the last years have said that they see 
from their cultural perspective, they see 2012 to 2021 as kind of the transition between the uh, the old world and the next world. And I, and I do think we're seeing, uh, you know, tremendous turbulence. And, you know, we're, we're in this kind of uh, liminal space uh, as, as, as a society on many levels. Absolutely. Alert Conservation is an alliance of leading environmental researchers and thinkers committed to promoting cutting-edge conservation research and to galvanize public support to solve major, often neglected environmental issues. Alert publishes weekly blog posts as well as frequent press releases and high-impact videos to focus attention on the crucial conservation challenges we are all facing. Head to alert-conservation.org where you can find out more. You, you talk in your book about a regenerative society. What would that look like? Well, I mean, I think that in order to bring about a large-scale system change, we need to have, we need to be pointing towards something. And, you know, we're, we're in a consumer, you know, capitalist system that's oriented towards, like, you know, material progress, uh, individual wealth, you know, with a, with a kind of nihilist or cynical kind of undertone. It, you know, and, and, and so if we're going to, you know, create something different, we would need to have a, a, a sort of substantive new idea, new model. Personally, I mean, I know, I know your, your show is called The Sustainability Agenda. I don't think that sustainability is uh, effective as an uh, alternative. And the word sustain, you know, suggests something like somebody in an iron lung or somebody who's just like holding on. Uh, and, and nature itself, you know, doesn't seem to just sustain it seems to you know flourish, thrive, evolve, take new forms, uh, transmute. So, so for me, this idea of a uh, regenerative society is a model that uh, might work uh, for us to think about what type of future we would want to have. And uh, it's not just me. I mean, there's a n- number of thinkers who are talking about you know regenerative capital, regenerative uh, design, you know regenerative cities, and so on. So the idea would be, you know, if you could create self-sufficient, small-scale models where there was no need for added inputs, you know, maybe you could create templates for these kinds of models where, you know, communities can create their own food, uh, you know, compost, uh, their own waste, create their own energy, create their own government systems, create their own media. You know, maybe that could then be something that scales up, like a, like a healthy cell in, in like a new social organism. And how does that all take place within the capitalist system we've got today? You have to look at different theories of change, right? Like uh, a lot of people like to use the metaphor of the you know caterpillar to the butterfly in the chrysalis and how it's actually not as if the caterpillar just sprouts wings, but it's more a process where the, the caterpillar pretty much kind of dissolves into a kind of biotic goop in the chrysalis and then there's a handful of what are called imaginal discs or imaginal cells that have like this imprint for uh, the new organism and they begin to propagate as the caterpillar is dying and, and the caterpillar's immune system first sees them as a virus kind of attacks them then they get stronger and they start to form new connections and they rebuild the whole organism and then they you know sprout wings and so on so in a way like we're definitely seeing the old political economic structure uh, seems to be very stagnant it seems to be kind of hardening, doesn't seem able to adjust quickly enough to all the changes that are happening. One theory of change or one possibility is that it's just a question of developing enough prototypes for these new communities, and that starts to scale 
and uh, you know accelerates as the old system deteriorates. Yes, the political system um, is a key part of it, and I guess the, the economic system uh, they're, they're all intertwined, really, aren't they? But the the, the financial system and the corporate system as well um a lot of uh, momentum here in terms of uh, in different ways um I, I know you 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 raise questions about sustainability as kind of catch all idea for 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 a lot of this stuff but there, there there's certainly some corporate sustainability there's things going on in the world of finance how real do you think they are these these changes that are going on you see uh, uh, a big bank just said they're no longer going to uh, finance coal uh, generation uh, in Asia there's lots of ESG investment there's impact investment there's there's a, a range of different things going on um, do you do you feel that that's significant well I mean it's significant and I think we should welcome you know all efforts and all hands on deck but I don't think it's going to be sufficient. I mean, my, my personal perspective ultimately is that um, we're not really going to be make to be able to make the changes that we need to make uh, within the current model of capitalism, and you know, which, which just constantly requires uh, more growth. I mean, you have debts. Uh, you know, capitalism is a debt-based system, so the, the debt you know creates an instability, and it forces uh, excessive growth and development. Uh, and you have to keep, you know, increasing the amount of economic activity. And ultimately, most of that economic activity is in conflict with uh, the health of the biosphere. I don't think we're going to see a reformed capitalism, a green capitalism, anything like that is ultimately going to be able to make the level of systemic change that's necessary. But I definitely think it's all important in, in the interim. So you're less of a green growth, more of a degrowth. Well, post-growth. I mean, there are things that we can grow forever, like uh, our capacity to love, our connection to community, uh, our intellectual and creative depths, uh, our, our uh, esoteric uh, tech technologies, you know, our capacity to commune with uh, other dimensions through psychedelics or meditation or uh, perhaps master kind of like uh, ways to utilize chi or subtle energy systems you know, uh, tantric sex, if that is of interest. I mean, there's many things that we could, that we can grow in, but we can't keep growing uh, the economy. And, and for me, it's like, it's, you know, it's the same thing as like when an when individual of a species reaches maturity, you know, you're not going to grow physically anymore, but you can grow, you know, in inward ways forever. Yes, it is a challenge conceptually, I guess, and indeed in practice when so much of the world, uh, you know, it needs economic growth in some kind of or another. And I just spoke to Jason Hickel recently, and uh, we had an interesting discussion about that. And there's clearly two different uh, economic situations. And, you know, in the developed world, clearly we can look at that kind of degrowth model. When you're looking at countries, that, you know, like India uh, and so forth, it, it doesn't work so well in poorer countries. And I guess this is uh, at the heart of the what you talk about in the book has these intermeshing you know you've got the economic system you've got the political system then i guess you've got the kind of media and things like that and and technologies as well i'm, I'm wondering um uh, yeah but, but but also i mean in a country like india like you know when i traveled there years ago people were poor but there was such a deeper level of like happiness and connectedness that people had. Uh, you know, often, you know, we, we've convinced, you know, the, the modern West, America and the U.S. has been, you know, imperialism, you know, colonialism, kind of marketing, you know, then 
our way of life around the world, you know, with, you know, kind of incredible force. And we forced all these countries around the world to kind of adapt our ideas of what a good life is and so on. But there, there seems to be no evidence that that's causing people to be more happy or, or feel better about themselves. If anything, it's, it's the opposite. You know, de- development, the whole model of development, World Bank development, it's developing towards this Western ideal of what, of what a good life is. And, um, you know, that's something that really also needs to be uh, totally interrogated. I mean, in my book, I talk about this woman, Helena Norbert Hodge, who worked in Ladakh for uh, a long time. And she talked about when she first went there as an anthropologist, it totally rocked her world because she'd assumed that they were like backwards people. But she found that they were so much happier and better off in so many, you know, profound ways than people where she was from in England. Uh, they were kind of like a Tibetan Buddhist culture. People didn't even have, you know, property. They, they didn't have like deeds to their lands, but they'd all lived in the same area for, you know, many, many generations. So everybody just, you know, recognized each other's rights to live in, in their houses and would help each other out. And they would come together to like sing their songs or, or, you know, practice their cultural traditions or spiritual traditions. And then over the next decades, she saw, you know, kind of Western commercial and industrial culture come in and she said it was basically like, like an acid that melted apart, you know, corroded and destroyed all, all of these webs of traditional living uh, to the point where, you know, suddenly the teenagers were like sniffing glue. Uh, they didn't want to sing their traditional songs anymore because of, you know, pop culture from the West. And, uh, you know, people were very depressed and, and working, you know, in industrial you know, factories and so on. We've been pushing this whole model of development on the world and, you know, it's extremely destructive. It doesn't even create the type of happiness that we would want to create. So, you know, what, what would be much more intelligent would be to um, really modify that. And, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we want people to not starve, you know, to have water to have uh, you know, power when necessary. And we want people to be able to determine to the greatest extent possible their own life trajectory. But I, I think we also, uh, you know, we're for, we're, we've been ramming uh, down the throats of the world a system that doesn't produce happiness, is extremely unjust, and is also ecologically uh, catastrophic. Yes, I, I, I went to a talk of hers recently, actually with Jason was talking there as well, and it's a very compelling story. How, how do we get there? You know, as you say, this this using this imagery of the asset, which has destroyed the you know the social bonds in this these, these societies. Do you think that there's going to be a, a a crisis? Could ecological crisis be the kind of trigger? Well, you know, as somebody who tries to you know think into the future, I mean, I have to say that I've become increasingly uh, pessimistic. You know, and I'm seeing what's happening with Trump, and also how the the distractions that people are are caught in, and so on, and the lack of awareness, even among quote-unquote intelligent people about, about like, you know, basic ecological literacy about what's happening. So, um, you know, there, there, I mean, there's definitely going to be crisis. We're already having them, but it's going to get much worse. The question is, how is the system going to respond? It seems likely in the short term, it's going to respond with increasing authoritarianism, increasing attempts to control borders, I, 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 w- I would say that I think genocide um, is a possibility. I mean, a lot of the rhetoric of the U.S. Uh, right wing and, and now even their tactics with ISIS and so on are really not that different from what we saw in the 30s uh, in Germany. 
you know, if you can control the uh, system of like domination, you know, and demonize uh, outsider groups, uh, you know, that often then leads to kind of a, a genocide uh, happening. So, I mean, that's not even out of the question, even in the U.S., you know. And, um, and, and you know, because we're going to see, we're already seeing, we're going to see more and more depletion of resources, uh, you know, coastal flooding, populations on the move. We already have like 65 million environmental refugees. That could easily go up, you know, way more in the next uh, decade. So the near-term prognosis is, is not good. What I outlined in How Soon Is Now was the, you know, the option towards a, um, you know, an effort to, you know, protect our human family and to focus on healing the planet, you know, uh, kind of um, enhancing its regenerative capacities. Uh, and, you know, that, that for me remains an option. Uh, it's certainly the, be the, be the best shot we could make. You know, so for instance, we know that if we were to transition, you know, rapidly from industrial farming to regenerative agriculture, we would be able to sequester like a huge amount of CO2 back in the soil. You know, we obviously need to transition rapidly from fossil fuel-based energy to renewable energies. You know, but the, these, these are huge goals that really cannot be accomplished in this current economic system. So we would have to construct, you know, redesign the financial system so that it focused on, uh, you know, not, you know, just extractive profit making, but on kind of sharing resources, uh, accelerating the system redesign that we need. So I don't, you know, how we would get there, you know, is, is probably inconceivable without, without at this point, without, without some serious breakdowns. Yes, yes. Um, I taking uh, William Gibson's vision of a, a future that's already here, just not evenly distributed. Are there some examples that uh, inspire you? Some cases, some, some cultures, some initiatives. There's a lot of uh, people's movements, um, indigenous people's movements, various different uh, projects. Uh, there are some, and I probably need to study and learn about more in depth. Uh, I mean, obviously, as you said, indigenous people's movements, like the Zapatistas movement, prototypes, I mean, indigenous cultures that are, you know, able to live even in a fairly large, uh, you know, number of people, you know, with, with basically no ecological footprint, uh, like the Kogi or the Arawak, who have like 30,000 people living in the mountains, you know, totally self-sufficient, except now they get the occasional cell phone or, or whatever. Communities in the book, I wrote about one in Portugal called Tamara, which fascinates me, partially because it has evolved a whole new set of practices around love and relationship, which uh, I also think is uh, a necessary area for humanity to address at this point. You know, so, so there are different community models. I definitely wish there were more. Yes, yes. And I'm interested in, the again, coming back to this, the question, the connection between the individual, the sociocultural, and then the, you know, the societal. You can kind of, uh, going from the individual, the personal, um, which has been a theme in your work, and the, the you know, the, the experimental nature, the, you know, changing consciousness and so forth. Um, I just wonder if you talk a little bit about that and the potential. I mean, I guess we've seen, I mean, well, you know, the 60s is often uh, talked about and the, the free love and all of the 
positivism and the, the optimism associated with some of the movements there and the, the initiatives and so forth, and which didn't really get us anywhere except some kind of commercialized version of uh, the counterculture, I guess, that commodify this as, as uh, Thomas Frank talks about. But um, can you just talk a little bit about how you see that operating or the, because these different groups around uh, that, that are very inspiring that you can come across, as you say, and, and groups that are paying attention to consciousness. And then uh, you talked about all the, the kind of connected there. Yeah. So I guess one perspective that I arrived at in my work is that, uh, you know, we're never going to have a successful alternative until we've resolved the uh, war between the genders. And um, to do that is a, a deep process, you know, which also just involves a- acknowledging, you know, our, our authentic truth as um you know, primates, embodied beings or whatever, you know, which is that um, we're not designed, you know, we can be monogamous individually, but we're not, we're not kind of built by evolution to be monogamous as a species. So, you know, we're, we're always trying, you know, we, when we've created this, you know, through the Christian conditioning, you know, we've created this ideology of, of, of uh, monogamy as like the ultimate good for relationships. And um, what that leads to in practice is a lot of uh, unhappiness, frustration, and tension, you know, and, and, and that actually becomes like a fractal that uh, radi- radiates out through society, you know. So, I mean, almost every man I know, particularly um, who's in a long-term monogamous relationship, you know, ha- has a desire for, you know, other connection. And in many cases, they either stifle th- those desires or they satisfy them illicitly. Uh, you know, whether through, you know, paying for sex on business trips or affairs or, or whatever, or, you know, something else happens. So, so you know, so, so people are having this core relationship with the person they're, you know, closest with in the world, and, and they're being forced to hide or conceal, you know, different aspects of their true self from that person. And so that then I think leads to a situation where, you know, because you're being hypocritical and a little bit corrupt, uh, in your primary relationship, your core relationship, uh, you're then more likely to expect corruption, hypocrisy in in the world around you. You know, so it doesn't surprise you that political leaders are corrupt and hypocritical, that business leaders are, you know, corrupt, that, that religious leaders are corrupt. So I, I think this old ideology of this monogamy programming uh, ultimately leads to this uh, acceptance of hypocrisy and inauthenticity in society as a whole. Uh, now, that's not to say that I don't think that monogamy is good for some people. If, if people have a happy, you know, truly authentically happy connection in that way, that, that's great for them. But uh, I think many people are being forced in, into this scenario that isn't really working for them. And, um, you know, Tamara is this community in Portugal that kind of made these realizations. Uh, they, were, they were German radical thinkers who've been part of the um, Green Movement and, and other uh, political, leftist political movements. They were trying to figure out why these great dreams of the 60s didn't work out. And they began to realize that it actually had to do with these core issues in love and Eros, that uh, people were not yet at the level of consciousness where they could really address it in, in full clarity and presence. So they created, they incubated a new social model, uh, first at a community in Germany called Zeg, and then in Portugal in this community called Tamara. 
And uh, I mean, that's a, it's a very interesting model. It's very transparent. It's very rigorous. Essentially, they're, 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 they're seeking to liberate eros or sexuality, but to do it in a way that allows for the, the strengthening of, of a whole community structure. It seems to have it, that it's been effective. So they've been going you know, for a very long time now, and they're still growing. Right, right. That's very interesting. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes and aims to break the link between natural resources, conflict and corruption. From its first campaign, which shut down the Camer Rouge's illegal logging industry, to Blood Diamonds, anonymous companies, the brutal killings of environmental activists, Global Witness's hard-hitting investigations and tenacious advocacy galvanise global change. Global Witness doesn't just track and expose corruption. It works to transform the systems that allow corruption to flourish. Find out more at globalwitness.org. Are you optimistic? Uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, as I said, I'm feeling more and more pessimistic um, in terms of, I mean, I feel almost guilty, you know, that I have like, a, you know, I have a daughter going to college soon. And um, I, I almost feel I should be sending her to like survival training school or something. I mean, if we're looking at the, the predictions of three, four, five degrees Celsius temperature rise are plausible by 2050, things are going to go haywire. You know, I mean, we know if it goes to two degrees Celsius warmer above pre-industrial levels, we're going to lose 40% of the Amazon. If it goes, you know, three or four degrees, we lose 60 or 70% of the Amazon. You know, the Amazon is 20% of the oxygen we breathe. So that means we're going to be losing like 10% of the oxygen just from the Amazon. And meanwhile, we're seeing forest fires, you know, all around the world, uh, releasing carbon. Uh, we're seeing, you know, the loss of over 100 species a day. And uh, we don't really see a mechanism to, you know, turn the boat around. Yes, so yes. in that yeah. sense, I'm not very optimistic. But, you know, I do think that uh, there's another level, which is what I wrote about a lot in the second book, 2012, which is this occult or metaphysical level. I mean, I feel that the human world is, is somehow the staging ground for a, uh, you know, creative play of consciousness. And, um, you know, we're clearly meant to be, you know, part of this pageant right now. And, uh, you know, what we actually experience is, as reality is, is, is kind of an, a magical thing. You know, the improbability of being, you know, a living species on a, on a you know, rock hurtling around a gigantic uh, nuclear reactor in an infinite void. You know, we, we forget how unbelievably improbable this all is. And, and so it all suggests to me in my own work in shamanism and studying like Carl Jung and all these types of people, is that you know we're we're there there there's some other thing that's happening that there's uh, that that we're in the staging ground for the evolution of consciousness perhaps the transformation or transmutation of consciousness you know perhaps the rapid evolution of technology uh, our our development of a communication system that allows the whole species to now speak you know to its to itself you know across space and time you know perhaps this is all the necessary precondition or some other type of uh, transmutation that take place. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, there's two points I wanted to just talk about. One is, I guess, is the political uh, situation and the, the, the levels of inequality and the question of environmental justice um, that pose that who's going to, who, who's going to reap the, the whirlwind or the consequences of this 
uh, world that we live in and the you know the billionaires who are trying to you know, buy property in New Zealand and get their blood uh, rejuvenated to live and that they they feel that they're going to survive they're going to be okay and uh, to what extent do you think that one needs to moving forward deal with the, with power and how it's uh, structured and how financial power has taken over so many institutions today yeah well I mean I, I think that one definitely has to deal i don't know how you deal with it exactly but um yeah i mean there's definitely various like science fiction dystopian outcomes you know which could include uh you know small wealthy elite you know trying to survive uh in some fashion while everybody else goes to hell and you know we already see that happening in a certain sense but you know with the evolution of technology and the evolution of, you know the acceleration of climate change you know all that stuff could get much worse I think it's going to become hard, though, for uh, those people because um, the disparities are just becoming more and more obvious. I think I think wealth in itself, or great wealth, comes with it with a deep uh, kind of uh, consequence, you know, karmic consequence of guilt, uh, whether that's suppressed or not, responsibility that you either rise to or you don't. I mean, most of the very wealthy people I know, uh, and for some reason I seem to know quite a lot of them. Uh, really, really seem to be like suffering or half crazy as they kind of deal with, you know, this sense of, you know, obligation and, and maybe the, you know, the karma of where all that money has been created from and so on. So, um, you know, it, it, it is quite possible. I mean, you know, a, a future scenario could be that uh, the world, the earth really becomes unlivable and the small group, you know, managed to create like dome cities or whatever or live underground and then begin to develop technologies to, to, you know, I mean, there's been other times when the human population has crashed back to almost nothing, Uh, you know, 40,000 people or whatever it was, or a few thousand people 40,000 years ago or whatever it was. So, uh, you know, something along those lines is really not inconceivable at this point because at at the moment we're really exhausting and depleting the, the natural capital of the planet at like an incredible rate. Yes, yes. The other area I was interested in and I think is important is that certainly when you move from the individual to the societal and to the eco uh, in terms of the uh, ecological problems we have, and it's a criticism that's been leveled against the environmental movement is not having a vision of the future or not having a positive vision of the future being you know very much tied up in the 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 drama and the the tragedy of it all um and uh, in your book uh, there's uh, much inspiration with uh people you talk to and some of the projects you look at and so forth i'm just wondering how important do you think that is being able to articulate a vision of what a future society would look like and are there a few thinkers that you think are doing interesting work here well, I mean, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, yes, I think it's absolutely crucial. We need a direction. Uh, I mean, this idea of like technology and material progress, uh, you know, has has been the, uh, the the direction for the last century and a half. Um, and what I argue for in the book is now we have to shift uh, our vision, and that requires kind of like a marketing and media campaign. Uh, you know, really, you know, in the same way, you know, you know, marketing was able to sell a lot of destructive products to people, you know, the way Edgar Bernays sold tobacco to young women by calling them tortures of freedom and having flappers light cigarettes and like celebratory parades and so on. You know, we, we definitely need to present a different model for the future. 
And, um, you know, for, for me, that model would be, uh, you know, a, a world where we're working together to elevate uh, the abilities and, and lives of our human family as a whole, uh, while we restore and replenish uh, the Earth's ecosystems, uh, and the new frontiers being uh, our, our self-development through uh, esoteric tools like you know meditation, yoga, uh, psychedelic exploration, tantra. Uh, I think that um, a conscious liberation of eros and sexuality could be of great benefit for humanity uh, beyond um, the kind of repressive uh, form that, that sexual liberation took in, in the 60s and 70s up till today. It could be another uh, really uh, more evolved approach to a community, to Eros, uh, building, building multi-generational communities again where people really take care of each other, communities where people are growing their own food, uh, but also we liberate the knowledge commons so that people can learn, they can explore humanities like rich creative history, you know, they can innovate and so on. So yeah, there's like Jeremy Rifkin's kind of model from the, the, the third industrial revolution, you know, like um, shifting, you know, using automation to liberate people from drudgery as Oscar Wilde discussed in The Soul of Man Under Socialism to really give people the opportunity to explore their unique essence. You know, I mean, we really could be at the beginning of an incredible renaissance for, uh, you know, for, for humanity uh, if we can break through uh, this current ideological barricade uh, of, uh, you know, of, of consumerism and nationalism and all this other crap. We don't have very long, um, Daniel, do we? What, what's next for you? Uh, I mean, at the moment, I've been offered a position being the director of a new foundation or philanthropy that somebody from the blockchain world uh, is starting, uh, Brock Pierce, who was, uh, who's uh, chairman of the, of the Bitcoin Foundation. So it's a little bit amorphous right now, but, but I'm seeking to pull that into a manifestation. No more book projects? Are there a couple uh, on the back burner there? Uh, I'm finishing a book uh, with a co-writer on ayahuasca which is looking at the global spread of ayahuasca and uh, interviewing you know, many people and practitioners whose lives have been transformed by it. So that should come out next year. The title is When Plants Dream. Uh, I'm, I'm most interested after that in writing a book on, on this topic of uh, you know, the, the transformation of love and, and, and gender and, and eros and tantra, but that'll probably be like three to four to five years out. Yeah, I, mean, I, I write a lot on Facebook. So if people hear this, they want to follow my ongoing thoughts. They can definitely catch me on Facebook. Great. Yeah, and your books are available on Amazon. How, how Soon Is Now? Yeah, How Soon Is Now is also now an audio book. I know a lot of people are preferring audio these days, so they can read it that way. Right. right. Fantastic. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.